morning, friends. Uh, thank you so much for being here today, especially as Ryan said, if it's your first time with us, maybe your first time in a long time. Uh, my name is Thomas, Pastor T, some call me. Uh, great to have you today. Hope you had a great week uh, with snow on Monday, 72 degrees on Thursday, and 40 miles an hour wind on Friday. Just another week in Colorado. Amen, my friends. Uh, a special thanks to Pastor Nathan for filling in for me the last couple of weeks and for doing a masterful job of walking us through some key teachings and chapters in the book of Mark as we come to the end of our remarkable series. In fact, we'll be wrapping the whole series up next week on Easter Sunday. And speaking of Easter Sunday, Ryan promised you I would do this and I, I would be remiss if I didn't. I want to challenge you when it comes to Easter. I want to encourage you when it comes to Easter. Next week, would you invite and bring with you as many people as you can? We've got a couple of invite cards in every single bulletin. There's about 500 more out there in the foyer. Would you grab those cards up and would you just pass them out? Friends, neighbors, classmates, coworkers, and anybody and everybody in between. Random folks at the grocery store, just, just kind of make it rain on the street if you have to with those cards, okay? But we want to spread the word. I honestly feel like an invite to church on Easter is as easy as an invite to a Broncos tailgate party or something. It just, it just seems natural. And so would you make the invite this week? We're praying as a staff hard that folks would experience in both services an incredible encounter with the Lord. They would experience the power of the resurrection life. We've got 9 a.m. choir led, 10.30 a.m. band led. So two dynamic worship services, uh, great children's programming at both. Come and find me if you have any questions or concerns. I also want to plug our Monday Thursday service. We're coming together this Thursday, the Thursday of Holy Week, 7 p.m. here in the sanctuary. Uh, it's something we've done the last couple of years now. We love to come together Monday, Thursday. Monday simply means command. It was the night Jesus gave his final command to the disciples to love one another as he has loved them. So we're going to take communion together, representing the Last Supper. We're going to reflect on the cross. Uh, there's going to be some worship, some drama. You're not going to want to miss it. Family-style worship, Monday, Thursday, 7 p.m. Then, of course, two services on Easter. I just really want to challenge you. Invite, invite, invite. Bring, bring, bring. Let's see what the Lord does in this place a week from today. Uh, let me pray for us. As I do, I'm going to pray for the offering, ask the ushers to come forward and then start collecting that. But let me pray as we enter into the text this morning. God, you are an amazing God. You are so good. You are good to us. So much, so much better sometimes than we give you credit for, God. And we don't want to be like the crowds um, years and years ago, Lord, that on one day we're shouting your praises and on the next day we're, we're screaming for your death. No, we want to be totally devoted to you. We want to be all in, no matter the cost, no matter the consequence, God. We want to be your people. And so would you help us now? Would you help us to sacrifice our, our, our money and our stuff so other people could find and experience life in you? And would you help us now to devote ourselves to your word? Shape us, God. Speak to us. Do a work in every single person in this room right now. Breathe the spirit into this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, every once in a while, uh, the world gets to watch and witness a very uh, public, high-profile trial, right, of a very public, high-profile individual. You have O.J. Simpson, Martha Stewart, Timothy v uh, McVeigh, but many of us have seen a very important person face a very public judgment. And if we're honest, most of us are somewhat intrigued by that whole situation, are we not? And Hollywood has totally capitalized on our fascination with high-profile uh, trials because many a movie 
have been based around or involve very iconic trial scenes. Would you agree? Here's a collection of some of my favorite. Uh, watch this. That would mean that you lied about your age to make yourself older. But why would any woman want to do that? I changed it so I could get married. And the truth shall set you free! Henry Ward Beecher in Proverbs from the Plymouth Pulpit, 1887, said it. This is excuse 20th century, Your Honor. going to make a mockery of the court. I am afforded the right to speak in my own defense, sir. By the Constitution of the United States, this is the same document about which the guarantees my liberty. United States. Now, liberty, in case you've forgotten, is the soul's right to breathe. I mean, it cannot take a long breath. Laws are girded too tight. Without liberty, man is a sinko. Man is a what? Ibid, Your Honor. She's my age. Did she tell you that? How would you feel if your father married someone who was your age? You, however, had time to hide the gun, didn't you, Chutney? After you shot your father. I didn't mean to shoot him. I thought it was you walking through the door. <laughs> Sir, you're out of order. Out of order? I show you out of order. You don't know what out of order is, Mr. Trask. I'd show you, but I'm too old. I'm too tired. I'm too blind. If I were the man I was five years ago, I'd take a flamethrower to this place. So you were just trying to help out a, help out a friend? Who was frightened? Who was scared of what was happening to her no when you're intent. scared? What? There was no evil intent. There was no evil intent and no malice. No. Uh, uh... Objection, Your Honor. What? He's leading the witness. Sustain. Give me a break. We're both lawyers. Mr. Tully, you have any questions for this witness? Might have some bearing on this case. Do I? No, we've helped them out enough already. No, Your Honor. Colonel Jessup, did you order the code red? You don't have to answer that question. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. There are lots of trials to choose from. Are there not real life Hollywood versions? But there's a trial at the end of Mark, Mark 15 in fact, that is more famous, better yet more infamous than all other trials combined. This trial doesn't involve some criminal, it involves the Christ. It doesn't revolve around some felon, it revolves around the very namesake of our faith. The one on the stand in this trial, Mark 15, isn't some delinquent, it's deity, divinity, on the witness stand. See, last week, Pastor Nathan talked about Mark 14, where Jesus and the disciples walked to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a literal garden just outside the walls of Jerusalem. And it was in that garden where the disciples struggled to focus and, and stay awake and, and pray for the difficult things that were yet to come. But it was also in that garden where Jesus struggled. He struggled to embrace and accept the will of God, the plans of God for his life. And if you missed that message, you have to go back and listen to it. So powerful at so many levels. But this morning, I want to talk to you about what happened right after that. Because immediately after Jesus finished praying, everything changed. A group of soldiers and thugs comes to arrest him. They tie him up. They, they cover his face. It says they drag him away, accusing him of being a thug and, and a, um, a rebel rouser. They accuse him of treason. And so begins, as Kim mentioned, the passion of the Christ, the final hours of Jesus' time here on the earth. And that's what I want to talk about. And I want to talk about what happened those first few hours. 
Now, it's important to understand what, what happened right after the garden because a lot of us are confused and, and the movies don't help us a ton. But Jesus is arrested around midnight, maybe even 1 a.m., right? They have dinner together, Last Supper. They go to the garden about 10 p.m., 11 p.m., and then he's arrested. It's about 1 a.m. So everything that happens over the next 9, 10, 11 hours or so happens under, under the cloak of darkness, under the cover of darkness. And that is so symbolic because of how ugly everything is about to become. And ugly doesn't even begin to describe it. Over the next 12 hours or so, Jesus is not only arrested, but he is ridiculed, beaten, mocked. And many of us don't know this, but he stands trial. Six times, in fact, in 12 hours. Here's how the trials break down. Three of the trials are religious trials where Jesus stands before Jewish leaders, men like Annas, Caiaphas, and something called the Sanhedrin court. Then there are three civil trials that he must face as well. He stands before Roman rulers like Pilate, Herod, and then Pilate a second time. And in the gospel of Mark, this is just like him. He fast forwards all the way to the last one. He wants you to know what happens in that sixth and final trial because that's where Jesus's fate is sealed. Let's read it together, Mark 15. Very early in the morning, the leading priests, the elders and the teachers of the religious law the entire high council, for that matter, met to discuss their next step. They bound Jesus, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, you've said it. Then the leading priest kept accusing him of many crimes, and Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer them? What about all these charges they're bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing, much to Pilate's surprise. Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner, anyone the people requested. One of the prisoners at the time was Barabbas, a revolutionary who had committed murder in an uprising. The crowd went to Pilate and asked him to release a prisoner as usual. Well, would you like me to release the king of the Jews, Pilate asked, for he realized by now the leading priests had only arrested Jesus out of envy. But at this point, the leading priest stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. Pilate asked them, then what, what do you want me to do with the man you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. Why? Pilate demanded. What, what crime has this man committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. So to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip and then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. All right, imagine, if you would, uh, going to see a big game, a, a professional sporting event. I've been lucky enough over the course of my life to go to a couple games, Broncos games, Nuggets games, some Lakers games in L.A. It was great. But imagine going to a game like that and being stuck in a seat like this. Or maybe this seat right here. Or how about this seat over here? Yeah, you would be at the game, but you wouldn't actually see or appreciate or understand everything that was taking place at the game. You with me? You're being blocked by something. You're being blinded by something, even though you're right there. And that's exactly what happens here in the case and trial of Jesus. See, in this trial, there are three groups of people or individuals that I want to focus on this morning. They're all there at the trial. They're right there at the trial. There's a front row seat, but they're blinded by something. They're being blocked by something, and they can't see Jesus clearly. The three are the mob, the magistrate, and the murderer. Let's start by talking about the mob. Let's look at the trial scene through the eyes of the mob or the masses. I don't know about you, but I hate 
crowds. Anybody else just hate them some crowds? From parades to theme parks to the traffic on the 405 or now C470, right, early in the morning. I just hate me some crowds. I don't know what it is. They get me all worked up. They get me all tense. It's like too many people talking, too many people up in my personal bubble, too much BO, right? It's just too much of everything. I just hate crowds. So I would have hated, I would have hated being at Christ's trial. Because you see, around 9 a.m. or so, a huge crowd assembles outside of a place called Pilate's Palace. And like most crowds, after just a few minutes, this crowd gets a little rowdy and a little unruly. If you've ever been to a game where every single penalty or call goes against the home team, you know exactly how this plays out. A close friend of mine took his five-year-old son to a Broncos game a couple years ago, and after a really questionable and critical pass interference call against the Broncos, you can imagine the entire crowd starts doing what? Boo! You lousy! Right? They start booing and hissing. They get all angry. And so the little boy, the five-year-old boy, he jumps into the action. He starts booing too. Boo! Boo! And he turns to his dad and he says, Dad, why am I mad right now? But isn't that how crowds work? The loudest person in the crowd, or maybe the most intoxicated person in the crowd, is typically the person that leads and directs the crowd. Crowds aren't known for using sound judgment or logic or even common sense. Crowds allow emotion and commotion to drive them and dictate what they're doing. And as Kim mentioned, just Six days, not even, maybe five days after Jesus came in, the crowds were shouting, you're our king. You're the one that's here to save us. Five days later, they're shouting angry, hostile words. The crowd, the mob has become indignant. They've become outraged for some reason by this whole thing, this whole proceeding. In response to Jesus, to what he said, to what he did, to what he stood for, to how he described life and death, heaven and hell, to what he promised, to what he proclaimed, to how he's handling himself even now right in this moment, the masses, they turn violent and they turn their back on Jesus. They get so stirred up, they start demanding Pilate kill Jesus. I mean, shouting crucify at Jesus is a far cry from shouting boo at some referee at some game, but yet that's what they were doing in this moment. And I just have to ask the crowd, like, you mad, bro? Like, what the heck is, what? Why, why are you so mad right now? What's the problem? But they are mad. They're really mad. And if you think about it, when it comes to Jesus' teachings, when it comes to his life and his death, people still get pretty mad, do they not? It still can make folks a little angry and hostile and, and indignant. They can become indignant that God doesn't operate the way they think God should operate. People are indignant at the thought that God wouldn't fight back in this moment, that our God is some weak link, and he wouldn't be a superhero that suddenly takes off his thing and, and, and kills everybody in that moment. They're indignant that, that, at the thought that the world's destiny, or maybe even their own destiny, is somehow tied to this man's death. They're indignant at the ramifications of what Jesus' death on the cross means for them. See, a lot, I think a lot of people today get angry when you bring up Jesus or you talk about his death on the cross because deep down inside of them, they know what it means. They might not even be a Christian. They might have never stepped foot in a church before, but deep down, the cross of Jesus means certain things and everybody knows it. 
The first thing it means is that being a good person or being good enough is never going to be good enough. It just isn't. Sin and selfishness and stupidity, they go so much deeper in us than we'd like to admit. And we can't fix it or solve the problem on our own. The cross of Jesus means we aren't good. We aren't good at all. And being good is never going to be good enough. His death on the cross also means all roads, they don't lead to God. I don't care what everybody else says. If all roads led to God, do you think God would honestly crucify his son on your behalf? If there was another road, even just some random road off in the distance that took you back to heaven, don't you think God would have said, take that road. That's the road you got to go on. I'll spare Jesus because there's other ways to get there. You only kill your son if that's the only way to make it happen. And so I think people, when you start saying this stuff, right, you start talking about Jesus is the only way to God, the only way to heaven, the only way to eternal life, the one who paid the penalty for your sin, the one whose death is the only one that brings you life, you start bringing that up and what happens? People are like, good riddance, enough, get rid of him. Get him out of my face. They become angry and hostile. That's because we belittle and remove things that challenge us or convict us. That's what the mob did that day with God. They were right there. The mob was right there. They, they could see him, but they couldn't see him. They were blocked. It's as if they were sitting in that one seat and that pillar was right in front of them. They were blinded by certain things. I don't want that to be true for you. I don't want that to be true for you at all. I want you to see Jesus so badly. So don't let people's tainted or twisted opinions of, you, of Jesus, don't let it sway your opinion of Jesus. Don't let the immediate situation that you are in blind you to the ultimate need that you have. Don't let emotions like anger or frustration or vengeance or boredom or passion consume you to the point where they're controlling you like they did for the mob. Don't let hurt keep you from the healer. Don't let your problems keep you from the ultimate solution. Don't let your unmet expectations in God, don't let your frustrations of God, don't let them keep you from God. You with me? That's what the mob did. And they didn't, they didn't see him. They didn't see him. Someone else who didn't really see Jesus that day was the magistrate. That's a fancy word for the judge. He's a man named Pilate. Unlike the mob, Pilate wasn't indignant. He was just more or less indifferent. You ever been in a situation where you're with a group of friends and somebody asks, hey, hey, where should we go eat? And you kind of go around the group and everybody's like, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I don't. Anybody else ever been in a situation? In moments like that, I love to throw out the most disgusting option possible. Like, oh, oh, I know. Nobody else cares. Well, there's this Chinese place down in the back alley behind the waste treatment plant. All you can eat buffet, two bucks. It's amazing how much everybody cares all of a sudden where you eat. But you see, that lackadaisical, careless attitude, that describes Pilate to a T. As the Roman governor, he is like this judge over life and death sentencing. That's why the religious leaders bring Jesus to Pilate. The religious leaders can't kill Jesus on their own. They need help from Rome. And Pilate is that help. So they bring Jesus to, to Pilate. And in this moment, Pilate, when asked, what are you going to do with Jesus? Kind of throws up his hands like my friends did when I asked them where they want to go eat. Nah. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. See, Pilate doesn't seem to be a bad man. 
He just seems to be a weak man. He's not crazed like the crowds are. He's just a coward. You see, like the masses and the mob, Pilate's also blinded by certain things in this moment. He's blinded and he's indifferent. He's got complacency blocking his view of Jesus, his own comfort blocking his view of Jesus, his own self-centeredness blocking his view of Jesus. See, Pilate is faced with a choice in this moment. Will this man do something hard for God in this moment? Will he take a stand for God's sake? Will he sacrifice something for God's sake? And sadly, his answer is, no, I won't. I won't give it up. And sadly, a lot of people, I think, say the very same thing today. See, a lot of people are interested in Jesus. A lot of people claim they believe in Jesus. A lot of people even say they're devoted to Jesus. But when push comes to shove, when they're asked to be better, a better husband, a better wife, when they're told to forgive their abuser or love their enemy, when they face persecution, when they encounter a situation that demands they give up something they want so bad, they just kind of throw up their hands. You say, I'm done. I'm just done. I just don't care enough. I care about you, but I just don't care that much. I'm not going to go that far for you. And some of you are in a situation like that right now. You are being, like Nathan talked about last week, you are being pushed and pressed in different areas. Pushed and pressed to do the right thing. Pushed and pressed to make a change. Pushed and pressed to give up your comfort or your safety or your desires. Pushed and pressed to stand up, to stand out, to stand in the gap. You're being pushed and pressed right now to do something really, really hard for God. And the question is, Will you do it? And some of us are so indifferent in this moment. We're so indecisive in this moment. We're like pirate, like, I kind of know you're innocent, Jesus, and I want to take a stand for you, but everybody over here is pushing me, and it's going to be really hard, and if I do stand up for you, Jesus, it's going to cost me so much, I might even lose my life. Friend, you can do it. You can do the really hard thing. God wouldn't ask you if you couldn't do it. You can do it. You can do what no one else is willing or able or strong enough to do in Christ and through Christ and because of Christ. You can take a stand for Christ. Don't be like Pilate. Don't stand right next to the way, the truth, and the life and be so blinded to the way, the truth, and the life. Don't be that person. Make a decision. Take a stand. Be courageous for Christ. The third and final person in this story is a murderer, a man named Barabbas, or as the pastors like to say, because we all wish we had a really cool accent, Barabbas. That was a lot funnier on paper, obviously, then. All right, the text tells us that every year at the Passover celebration, Pilate, the Roman governor, the judge, would release one death row inmate back into civilization. Not exactly sure why he would do this or why the crowds would want him to do this, but it sounds like a political act of some sort, a way to pacify the crowd. And wouldn't you know it, on this particular day, the two options are Jesus, this beautiful, innocent, lovely man, and Barabbas, this hideous, ugly, murderous man. Mark tells us that this man, Barabbas, had recently been arrested for insurrection, which is rebellion and murder. When you think of Barabbas, I want you to think of first century terrorist. He honestly wants to take the system down. 
and is willing to do anything and everything to make that happen. So imagine this scene with me. Pilate presents two people. Jesus, the son of the living God, the gentle miracle man who helped, who healed, and who brought hope to everyone he met, and Barabbas, the angry, defiant rebel who murdered and could care less about everybody that he met. And Pilate asked the crowd, he asked the mob, who would you like? Who would you like to live with you again? Who do you want me to set free? Jesus or Barabbas? And I have to think as I'm reading this story, are you kidding me? Like, is this even a choice? This is absurd. This is, this is ridiculous. There's no comparison. Barabbas deserves the chains. Barabbas deserves to be locked up. Barabbas deserves to die. Give me Jesus, because Barabbas is a punk who messed his life up. Now, give me Jesus. See, all Jesus has ever done is use ordinary men to do extraordinary things. All Jesus has ever done is touch and heal and love lepers and outcasts and lost causes. All he's ever done is free people of demonic strongholds and reach out to those the rest of society had given up on. All Jesus had ever done was calm the storms of life, satisfy the masses. All Jesus had ever done was bring sight to the blind and hearing to deaf ears. That's all Jesus had ever done. And here, Jesus or the murderer? The life giver or the life taker? Who do you want? And the crowd, the crowd chooses Barabbas. Give us Barabbas, they say. Give us Barabbas. They can't even imagine another way. They can't even see a different way. They, they can't even fathom a better way. And so they just go with what they know. They go with what or who they are like. Give us Barabbas, they say. So Pilate gives the orders and the guards unlock his shackles, take off his chains, and they set the murderer free. And there's different dramatic depictions of this scene, but there's no mention in the scripture that Barabbas gives thanks to anyone in this moment. There's no mention that he thanks Pilate or the crowds. But that, that's okay because the crowds didn't save Barabbas. Sure, they were shouting his name, but they didn't save him. And Pilate didn't save Barabbas. Sure, he was the one that gave the order. And the system that day that was in place didn't save Barabbas. You know who saved Barabbas? Jesus. Jesus saved Barabbas. Jesus took Barabbas' place. Jesus suffered Barabbas' condemnation and curse. Jesus endured Barabbas' rejection, and Jesus died Barabbas' death. Without Jesus, Barabbas is a dead man. In this moment, this moment right here where Pilate says, who do you want to be set free? Jesus or this sinner? In this moment, when he hands over the sinner and he walks free, this moment is what's about to happen next Sunday on Easter Sunday for the entire world. This is a foretaste of the grace that is about to erupt out of the cross. See, just in case we wonder, what's, what was the cross all about? Just in case we, we think over the next couple of days or next week, what, what's the big deal with the cross? Friends, the big deal is this. I am Barabbas. You are Barabbas. We are all Barabbas. He's not just some guy from back in the day. He's this guy standing right in front of you today. 
guilty, rebellious, broken, sinful, selfish, rightfully condemned to death for the way I've lived my life. And yet, there is this indescribable God with an incomprehensible love who in that moment, who should you take, Satan, Thomas, or Jesus? And God says, I'll take Jesus so Thomas won't have to go. In that moment, when it should have been me, it wasn't. In that moment, God says, stop. I will take his place. I will die his death. I will suffer his shame. Let Thomas go free. Let him go free. I will stand here and take what is his so he can go free and take what is mine. And guys, this isn't just a one-time thing. The great substitution on the cross didn't just save you back in the day. The great substitution of the cross is designed to empower you and strengthen you and enliven you every single day because the substitution still takes place Jesus always takes what you have and what you deserve and the ugly stuff in your life. He always takes it and replaces it and substitutes it for the good things from himself. He always gives you his grace and his freedom instead of the, the, the chains and the bondage. One more video because uh, Judah Smith says it better than I ever could, but I want you to watch this. God sent his son for Barabbas. Even the one he knew would walk away from Jesus and his free gift and never come back. He loves them. And the nerve, the call, and the audacity of believers to think, I got saved by grace, but now that I'm in this deep, dark place of bondage, I'm going to work hard to get myself out. What? That's the opposite of the gospel. Are you bound? Are you held under the power of this temptation, this sin? Do you feel like it's controlling you? What are you going to do? I'm going to shake myself free. Stop it! No, you won't! You're no match for the powers of hell and the urges of sin. You will not overcome it and you will never overcome it. You'll just be another statistic. There's no answer within yourself. Your own marriage, your own goodness, your own discipline, your own devotion will not save your marriage and will not save your kids. There's only one. And he's the one that took your place. He's the one that stood silently on the platform with Pilate and said, yes, let him have Barabbas. Take me. How many times have I stood on that platform with Pilate and Jesus and I'm the Barabbas and they start to take my chains off and I say, no, no, I deserve this. I deserve the guilt. I deserve the shame. I deserve the consequence. I deserve it. Jesus seems to look at me and say, no, son, let me have it. Let me have your sin. Let me have your pain. No, God, I did it to myself. I deserve it. My marriage won't make it. This is what I deserve. I deserve divorce. I deserve poverty. I deserve sickness. I deserve it all. No! God, I say, I'm so ashamed. Give me your shame. 
God, what if I do it again? I'll still be here. Oh, God, I don't want to hurt you. I love you. I, I don't want to do this anymore. Give me your sins, son. This is all we got. It's all I got. It's all you got. We can play games. We can play church games. We can pretend like some people are better than others and that's why they're blessed. Or we can all come to the honest conclusion that it's God. And it's God alone. The greatest challenge is not your discipline, your devotion, your focus. Your greatest challenge is believing the gospel. Could it be that there's a God with a love so scandalous, so wide, so deep, so vast, so high, so expansive, so welcoming, so inclusive? Let me have your sin, son. Okay. And I give him my sin. Let's stand in this empty space of forgiveness and acceptance while Jesus walks off to the cross that I deserve. I see him, I see him walking to the post to be whipped. As I stand a free man, all the attention is turned now. And I feel the love of God saying, Go, son, live your life. I'll pay the price. Where did we get off thinking that we were gonna set ourselves free? It's still Jesus. It'll always be Jesus. It'll never stop being the power of Jesus. If His blood is sufficient for your salvation, His blood is sufficient to sustain you through every challenge and every sin and every temptation. Jesus is enough. If you see Jesus like the mob did, you will be indignant because you will see him as ruining your life. If you see Jesus like the magistrate, you will be indifferent because you will think he's demanding too much from your life. But if you see him like the murderer did, you will be infused and in awe because you will know he literally saved your life. Let me pray for us. And then I think the only appropriate response is to worship a great God who would do that hideous, ridiculous, amazing thing for us. Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and given to me what is yours. You became what you were not for me so I might become what I would never be free, loved, safe, and saved forever. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.